We are in Mark chapter 11, and we're looking at verse 12 to verse 21. Uh, hopefully you have your Bibles there open. It's very important that you keep your Bibles open so that you can see and hear and check for yourself that what's being preached is not man's ideas, but it's the word of the living God. The outline in front of you uh, should say at the back, if you have it, should have some points for you to help you follow along. And you should say, standing, stand firm against polluted worship. Now, the country is uh, currently locked in Brexit dead heat, as you know. Parliament uh, belongs, as we are told by some experts, to the Remain camp. And it wants to do what it can to, uh, for the country to remain in the EU, to live without living. That's what, some, that's what one side says. I'm just reporting what I, what I hear. And, uh, but as you know, the public voted by over a million votes, I think, to leave. And in between, the government is caught in the middle. Uh, it has been caught in the middle for the last three years. Uh, it has uh, failed to implement the will of the people to leave the European Union. Now, whether you are a leaver or a remainer or you just don't care, right? Uh, the situation tells us something about human beings as you think about the Brexit deadlock. It tells us that all of us here find it very difficult, thank you brother, find it very difficult to stick to anything. All of us usually in life know what we need to do, but we like to bend the rules uh, in a way that suits us. Uh, it is not natural for us to, be, to, to avoid compromise. It's not natural for us to stand up for what we believe we know to be true. Uh, we don't like standing firm. Uh, people, in fact, sometimes see that as a good thing. They tell us it is better to bend than to break, don't they? Because standing firm in life, whether it's standing firm in our worship of God, it's standing firm in what we believe the Bible to be true, uh, will always cost us. But Rob reminded us of the suffering of many believers around the world. They are standing firm for Jesus, and it is costing them. You know, standing firm, even at work, against a bully could mean losing promotion. So often at work, we just sort of try and steer clear of the bullies so that, you know, we can stay on their good side. Standing firm for God in your life may mean ending a friendship you have treasured. Perhaps you are a young man, a young woman in a relationship, and you know that relationship, God doesn't approve of that. And you're struggling with that. So you, you, you just want to remain in there, and you're struggling to stand firm for God. It's going to cost you if you do, and you, you know... You, you're struggling there. And standing firm for true worship of God always costs us. It costs us in the church. In churches, you lose members. It costs us in the home because, you know, if you stand firm for true worship in the home, your wife might not be up for that. If you stand firm for true radical discipleship, your wife might, that might strain your marriage. Just obeying God could strain your marriage. In friendships, as I said, we, we, we struggle with that, just standing firm for God. It is difficult to stand firm for God and against sin when everyone else thinks sin is okay. So it is not a surprise that in the Bible, God encourages continuously believers to stand firm against temptation to pollute the worship of God. You know, many Old Testament prophets were raised by God with a specific aim to call people back to true worship of God. 
They were raised by God to stand against polluted worship of God. That's the greatest danger any society faces, any group of faces, is that their worship will become polluted. It will become about them rather than God. And the prophets were raised to call people back to true worship. We remember, don't we, Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. He showed that only the true God of Israel deserves worship. See, God wants his people to stand firm against polluted worship. And we see this in the life of Jesus. This morning we are in Mark chapter 11 and we look at verse 12 to verse 21. There are three truths I just want to share with you from this passage briefly. And we are going to do something we don't usually do, which is we're going to start this story in the middle, right? We are starting in the middle of this story. It starts from verse 12 to verse 21, but we're going to start from the middle there, verse 15. We're starting the story in the middle. And there, the first truth I just want us to see here is that we must stand firm against polluted worship of God. We must stand firm against polluted worship of God. So it is Monday morning, right? Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Uh, on Sunday, he went around, looked around, and went home, right, in Bethany. But now it's Monday. He's entering Jerusalem again. And as always, uh, he goes immediately to the temple as he did on Sunday. It is one of the greatest buildings, uh, in the, the temple in Jerusalem. It's one of the greatest buildings at this time. Uh, its foundation stones are larger than some of the pyramids uh, in Egypt. It gleams of gold and, and, and marble stones. It's, it's, it's an imperial building. It's built on a 35-acre site. It's amazing. And as Jesus enters through those double gates of the temple, he is immediately into an area known as the court of the Gentiles. It is the only part of the temple where Jews, where non-Jews are allowed. They can't go beyond the court of the Gentiles. And this place would normally be a very quiet place. Uh, it's a place for prayer. It's a place for reflection. Uh, it's there really for the Gentiles to come and seek God through prayer. Seek the God of Israel. So it should be a quiet place, but not today. Thousands of people have flooded Jerusalem for the Passover, right? And it looks like they're all here, right? It is packed, not for worship, but for big business. Everyone is buying or selling animals for sacrifice. Many are exchanging foreign currencies to local Tyrian coins, which is a local currency they need to buy things and uh, pay the temple tax. Uh, the people of God have turned this temple of God like Wembley Market. You know, I used to enjoy going to Wembley Market on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, it's crazy down there. Shepherd's Bush is also a thing. My father used to be into markets, so I love markets. And this is what looks like is happening here. This is like a uh, Wembley Market. It is huge, it's noisy, it's all happening, but the music is about to stop because Jesus is here. Look at verse 15 to verse 16. And they, that is Jesus and the disciples, came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. So buyers and sellers. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. This is the Bureau de Change, really. And the seats of those who sold pigeon. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
Uh, Jesus is not the sort of gentle baby that we have seen here. You know, we are used to seeing Jesus meek, mild, and gentle. You know, those Christmas pictures as a baby. That's not the Jesus. Jesus has grown up. He's, 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 he's now in this. He's now a man, young man, and, and he's walking into this temple, and he's not happy with what he sees. He's literally driving people out, right? And we ask ourselves, why is he doing this? Using such force. Because he's choosing to stand firm against the abuse of the temple. Jesus is zealous for the honor of God. Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is saying the traders and the religious leaders have allowed this shameful trading in the temple. And they are behaving now like thieves, aren't they? They, they? they are basically thieves. He calls them thieves. Right? Who are they stealing from? Why does he call this a den of robbers? Well, fundamentally, they are stealing from God. God has made it clear that the temple is meant for praying and worship. It shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But they have turned it into a trading floor. It's a bit like at the London you know, Stock Exchange when you see the traders uh, trading. They're shouting at the financial, at the, at the trading floor. It's like that. You know, they're huggling all over the place, you know, like at a market. They've turned into that. A place which is meant to be for prayer is now for just making money. The temple is meant to be about God. These people have made it to be something about them making money. And that's what's at stake here. We can talk about the money element, but what it is really fundamental here is that the worship of God has become about their needs. Whatever those needs are, they are not in church for God. They are in church about them. God has made clear what worship of God should be about, but they have come there as consumers. And Jesus is looking at this and saying, no, worshiping God when it's about, about you is an abuse of God. It is exploitation of God. You see, true worship of God can only happen if we worship God the way he has revealed us to worship him in his word and nothing more. It is, there is no room, no license for innovation in worship. Jesus is saying, you can't just get up in here and decide to set up shops and do things and think you're worshiping God. He says, no. Worship must be done God's way, in the way he has laid down in scripture. You and I have no license to be innovative when it comes to how we should live, even our relationship with the Lord. You cannot look to human reason. You cannot look to human feelings as the basis for your relationship with God. It must be based upon scripture. And Jesus has cleared the temple to say to us, worship me the way I have said you should, not as you feel, not as your heart says you should. Jesus is saying, "If if your worship of God is about you, you are abusing me. I am God and I am him. You know, the religious leaders are listening to this. And they are finding this very difficult. And they have decided 
This point is too big just to let it pass. We must kill Jesus for it. Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, to kill him. For they feared because all the crowds was astonished at his teaching. The God they claim to worship has come. He is standing in front of them. He is standing firm against their corruption of worship. And he is telling them they must turn around and worship him truly. And they decide to put him to death for them. And the opposition against Jesus here is showing us that standing faithfully, beloved, against any pollution of worship, whether in the church, whether in the world, whether at home, wherever God has placed you, will cost you. Because men and women, boys and girls, do not want to worship God the way God says we should worship Him. They want to live for God like Frank Sinatra. They want to do it their way. So we must stand firm with Jesus. This is what the Lord is showing us. We must stand firm against polluted worship. And we must start by standing firm against ourselves first. You are your greatest enemy because you are tempted to pollute the worship of God. You need to realize that. I am tempted to pollute the worship of God. You know, sometimes your relationship, if you're honest, with God is not always about God. You are tempted to use God to give you things that you want. I am. Sometimes you come to church just to put in some time for the Lord to assuage your conscience. Rather than the fact that Jesus makes your heart sing. Sometimes you are tempted to give God money, not because it already belongs to God, right? But because you have heard some crazy preachers say you got to sow a seed, etc., etc., and God will bless you back. And even if you don't believe that crazy stuff, you may still think that if you put in some good time for the Lord, evangelism here, care for your children, then God owes you. They're still trying to transact with God. You see, Christianity is not a transactional religion. It is not a religion where you must do things for God. That's paganism. It's not a religion where you must do things for God for God to do something for you. That's Hinduism. That's Islam. Keeping the five pillars of Islam. Christianity is one way. God does it all. It is finished. And therefore your relationship with God must not be trying to hand back from God. You see, if you worship God, if your worship of God is because you want God to give you those some things, then you are not worshiping God. You are worshiping those things. You have to be honest about that. If, if my relationship with God is about God giving me better children, then the truth is that I worship my children. No, God. God is just a means to my end, which is having great kids. Or if the relationship with God is about God giving me, you know, a wonderful relationship, somebody to marry, then really my true God is that person I want to marry. That's my true God. God is just a means, a, a, a ladder to get me there. Right? 
And you as a believer, you must be aware that even if you have come to true faith in Jesus, you are still tempted to use and abuse God. And therefore, standing firm against polluted worship starts with standing firm against your heart. Secondly, you must also stand firm against corruption of worship of God in the church, including this church. You see, beloved, Christianity has become about our felt needs. I look at churches everywhere. It has become about that. The world is saying to us, we must make the worship of God relevant to our culture. We need to get the right atmosphere on Sundays. We need a big band. You know, I had a lady once who was knocked on the door. As a, I think I'd just been here for a year. And she came in and says, I live down the road. Ah, oh, great, there's a church here. And she said to me, okay, right? She goes, she came in, can I have a look? Yes, yeah, so she came in. She goes, yeah, this is great, isn't it? But I tell you, what we need here, have you got a band here? I said, like, no, we haven't got a band. I said, you need a band. I've got to get out of home. Can I bring that as well? And she kept going, no, 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 no. I did tell her to come back, but I, I told her, no, I'm not sure that's for us, you know? But you see, the, the, the world has become like that. We, 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 it tells us you must have a big band. We need great visuals, you know. I'm all for PowerPoint, right? But we need that. We, we need that. You know, people are, are tired of holding things. They, they need to look up, and we need those great visuals, right? And you see a lot on television that when a preacher is preaching, sometimes they dim the light, isn't it? So that the light is on them, you know, those kinds of uh, interesting visuals. The preacher must dress the part, of course. Uh, if, 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 if he's trying to reach young people, he must look very hip. If he's trying to reach the middle class, perhaps wear a bit of a, of a tie, uh, as he wear. You know, they, I'm not saying me, but they must be. So, <laughs> I wear a tie when I always want to wear a tie. Uh, besides, Brother Rob balanced it out, didn't he? So, um, <laughs> so the point is that everything must be geared to the consumer. The church must be comfortable for non-Christians to walk in. And of course, when you speak with Christians, they routinely talk about shopping for a church, right? They're looking for a church, what are they doing? They are shopping for a church to see what church suits their consumer-driven needs as individuals and often as a family. Now, now I'm all for ensuring that you are in a biblical church that teaches the word of God. That's important, we need to look for that. But you must not get into the business of shopping for a church, looking for what suits you. Beloved, you are a sinner. What suits you is a church where sin is not preached. What suits you is in a church that only looks after your children or looks after your husband, but not yourself. And so we must examine ourselves. When we are looking for things and commitment and other things to the life of God, Bible teaching is not going to be top of our list because we are sinners. We are looking for good music, children's services, parking, digital services. That's a big thing now. The church must be plugged into Twitter so that when the sermon is preached, it's immediately retweeted as it were. Celebrity preachers and so forth. That is Christianity today. Consumer-driven. No different from the world. Jesus is saying when worship is about you rather than God, it is polluted worship. You must stand firm against pollution of worship in your life, in the church, and in the world. And how do we stand firm against polluted worship? Well, by doing what Jesus has done for us already, isn't it? He's standing on the truth of God, and that's the second 
observation I just want to make here. We must stand firm against polluted worship of God. That's the first point. The second thing we see here is that we must stand firm based on the word of God. We see that in verse 17, isn't it? It says, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus, everything he's doing, is rooted in the word of God. In fact, we see this even his entrance to the temple as he enters. He's not just doing this at random. He's doing it to fulfill Prophecies spoken by the prophet Malachi centuries ago. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, uh, it says this, doesn't it? In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and you prepare the way before me, that is the Lord God, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, is coming, says the Lord. And in verse 2 to verse 3, Malachi not only graphically describes the, the Jesus entering the temple as he's prophesied, but the anger with which Jesus pages the temple and the object of his anger. When we read on Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 says this, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. You will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And you will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like fine gold. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Malachi there combines the first appearance of Jesus in the temple and his final appearance when he comes on that great day of the Lord. So Jesus is not only fulfilling by entering the temple what has long been spoken, he is also even his words in verse 17. They are just they are a quote from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, verse 6 to 7 says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and who holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isn't it amazing that though Jesus is fully God, he only acts in this world based on the word of God. And he is teaching us here that all people of God must stand firm. We stand firm for God, not on our ideas. Or on some book we have read or some podcast we have listened. We stand firm based on the truth of God's Word. True worship is rooted in the truth of the Bible. If we are truly to worship God, we must know the Bible, study it, and seek to live by all of it. The word is all, right? The key word is all there. If you are a true follower of Jesus, your challenge is not lack of reading the Bible. I think some of you, I think I would encourage some of you to read more of the Bible, right? But I think I've spoken to a number of you, especially ladies, I have to say. They know the word of God very well. Right? So your challenge is not lack of reading the Bible. I think that men, I think in churches, need to catch up a little bit with the ladies. That's been my experience, right? But they know the word of God, right? We, most people who come to church are not spiritual babies, as it were, who are just infant babies that don't know much of the word, right? They are 
gigantic babies that love the scripture, right? And they crave for spiritual milk. You read the Bible and you praise God for that. Your real challenge is not lack of reading the Bible. Your real challenge is sticking to the whole counsel of God. Your challenge is standing on the truth of God in its totality. And the sad truth is that many who profess to be followers of Jesus treat the Bible as an a la carte menu at the restaurant. They pick and choose which bits they like, right? You know the Bible commands you to be baptized. You know that. But you, 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 you profess to be Jesus, but you have not been baptized. You have decided that bit of the Bible doesn't apply to you just now. It will only apply when you're ready, when you feel like it. You know the Bible commands you to make disciples of all nations. It does. But you are not discipling anyone. You can look at your life and say, I can go around and say, who is your disciple? Well, it's not me, right? So you, you know the Bible commands you. It's a command, but you have decided discipling people is not for me. You are picking and choosing. And we do this as parents, isn't it? The Bible says, commands us not to lie, right? It says that. And we believe it and we tell others do not lie. But you have decided some lies, especially to your children, are acceptable. Because no one gets hurt. I can just lie to my daughter a little bit here. I'm just keeping her from that truth. We do that. We pick and choose, don't we? You know the Bible says that God loves you with an everlasting love. And yet you still, every day, doubt is love. You, you even sometimes feel ashamed of your past when he said, your sins I'll remember no more. You see, you're picking and choosing which bits of the Bible. Jesus is saying, when you live like that, you're not standing firm on God's word. God commands you as an individual to not forsake the assembly of the saints. But you still treat Sunday attendance, whether morning and evening, as an optional thing. Well, it's optional to the church, but it's no option to you before God. Because God commands you to do it. To be with his people. You see, we pick and choose. And the reason we pick and choose is that we are standing on human reason. And when you're doing that, Jesus is saying you are polluting your worship of God. You are reducing God onto your level. You are deciding that these money changes. Okay, the temple is still there and the holy of holies is still alright, but we can do trading here. It's just the Gentiles. We can just... You're not seeing the whole thing. You're not submitting to the whole thing. As a follower of Jesus, you must stand firm against polluted worship of God by standing firm on his word. You must decide whether this Bible is really true and submit to all of it or not. Stop wasting your time even turning up on Sunday if you're not interested in submitting the whole word of God. It's what I would say. I think it's what the Lord Jesus would say. You know, I was doing outreach yesterday and I was out there with Pastor Derek and we were sharing the gospel. As I was, before I was going there, I thought to myself, Lord, today I don't want to go there. I do not want to even... Go to, to just preach. I just don't, I feel tired. I've had a long week. I don't want to do it. I, I told myself, but Pastor Jeremy, my pastor, of course, from Thamesmith, he's very geared to come. So he came. I said to myself, well, I'll go there. So we went there. And I was happy he was able to preach first. 
right here on the open here. Because then I could just go around talking, talking to people and I enjoy that, right? I said, Lord, I don't even want to stand up and preach, right? But the Lord told me, he said, look, you don't have an option, right? And the Lord said, look, I was, I was thinking about it, he said, it's either you believe my command to go and preach my word or you don't. You, you're not, you are not here to pick and choose. And so I had to ask myself, I said, do I believe, I had to ask myself this question. Do I believe the Bible is true? Do I believe those people walking down there are going to a Christless eternity as I was looking at them? And I said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Then they must hear the word of God preached. They must hear it. And that's how I got up and preached yesterday. And the Lord blessed us. So this is a question you must ask yourself. Do you believe this word is true or not? If otherwise you're just wasting your time. Yeah. We must stand firm against polluted worship of God. That's the first point. And we must stand firm not on some of the word of God, but on all the word of God. And finally, we must stand firm. Why? Because God destroys sinners. God destroys sinners. So after clearing the temple, uh, we are told in verse 19, um, Jesus has cleared the temple. We are told that Je Jesus leaves Jerusalem. Most likely, he's withdrawing back to Bethany. Look at verse 19 there. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now, on Tuesday morning, Jesus is on his way back into Jerusalem. And as they are walking, the disciples see something they do not expect to see. Uh, look at verse 20 to verse 21. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. What's going on here? Well, to understand what Peter is on about, we need to rewind the story, right, back to early morning Monday, just before Jesus entered Jerusalem, right? It is now Monday morning, right? And we see that from verse 12. Jesus is on his way from Bethany, the home of the hospitable Martha, we are reminding the story. Mary and the brother of Lazarus live in Bethany. That's where he's coming from on Monday morning. Remember, he drove out the temple on Tuesday, so we are Monday morning now. And to our surprise, his stomach is rumbling, we are told. Look at this 12. So look at this 12 now. On the following day, that is Monday, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. So he's Hungry. Perhaps our Lord has left Martha's house <laughs> that day very early. Because you know Martha, I'm sure, cooks up a nice dish. But this day, I guess, he's just leaving early and Martha hasn't had a chance to give him some breakfast. And as Jesus is walking, he notices something uh, strange. Look at verse 30. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Now, there are plenty of fig trees in Israel, right? So there's nothing particularly unusual about seeing a fig tree. What is strange about this fig tree Jesus has seen is that fig trees normally produce their first fruits before the leaves appear. That's an important point of detail. They produce fruits before. They are first fruits. They have second fruits, mature fruits. But the first fruits comes out before the leaves appear in full glory as it were. And this normally happens later on in season. So Jesus, as he's walking, he's looking at this fig tree. It is, as we are told here, in full leaf. 
Don't miss that point in verse 12. Verse 13. Uh, it's so a fig tree in leaf. In other words, it's in full leaf. The tree, if you like, is already covered with leaves ahead of the rest. It is screaming to Jesus, come and eat me. I've got fruits. Obviously, if you've got leaves, then it must have had fruits prior to it, right? So even though it is not the season for figs, as Mark tells us, Jesus naturally expects this tree to have figs. If you are in full leaf, you must have had some figs before that. But as Jesus goes there, he finds out that this tree may be in full leaf, but it's just like the rest. Let's read on verse 13. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. You can have a whole sermon on that. For it was not the season for figs. The tree promised to defy the odds. It looked at a wonderful Christian. But in the end, it has proved to be a hypocrite. And Jesus is not impressed with it. So what does he do? He does something that we want to see Prince Charles do, right? He talks to the trees, right? He talks to the tree. He's speaking to the plant here. Look at verse 14. And he said to it, right? That's, that's weird. <laughs> but Jesus talks to the, the weather, I guess, doesn't he? He talks to the wind. So he's talking to the trees because he made it. No one, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And these disciples heard it. He has judged the tree. He has condemned it. And now, after judging it, he continues his journey to Jerusalem. And as we have seen in verse 15 to verse 19, he clears the temple, right? Because that's on Monday. And then he returns to Bethany. And now we are back full circle, isn't it? When they are now walking out on Tuesday, and Peter sees his fig tree as withered. They have discovered that the tree has now completely gone. And we read about it in verse 20. Let's just read that again. And as they passed, verse 20 to 21, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And if you've been with us in Mark for a while, I appreciate not all of you have, but if you've been with us in Mark, I hope you recognize that what we have in front of us is something called a Macan sandwich. Remember Mark likes these stories, which starts with one story, then another story is inserted in the middle, then it ends with a story at the end. So the story began with a, uh, with, with a, with a, with a green, and, uh, a green leaf tree, which is fruitless, and it has ended with a dead tree. And right in the middle, we have Jesus clearing a dead temple, a fruitless temple. So the fig tree is intended to point us to the temple. The story here is the only one in Mark, and it's probably the only one in all of Scripture, it is called an acted prophecy. I think we see it in Ezekiel, actually. And some of the prophets like Jeremiah have acted prophecies. But it's almost like a living parable. You know, when Hosea marries the prostitute, that's an acted prophecy. And here we have an acted prophecy about what will happen to the temple. What is happening to the temple and what will happen to the temple later. Jesus is teaching us here that he is the Lord of the temple who came that Sunday to first inspect it and he came back again on Monday to inspect it for true fruit and he found there was no fruit in the temple. He found that it was a dead temple. And by clearing the temple, Jesus was not trying to reform the temple. No, no, no. Jesus was showing that this temple is being judged by God. Its time has now 
ended. Jesus will soon destroy the temple, just like the fig tree has been destroyed. And Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple came true in AD 70, just as the Lord predicted. The Romans entered Jerusalem and destroyed that wonderful temple of Herod to the ground. The destruction was so brutal that the Jewish historian Josephus records that the Romans <coughs> ran out of space in which to erect one more cross. Men, women, and children slaughtered. The temple completely gone. Jesus prophesied that, and it happened. That's a lesson of the fig tree. This is a lesson of the tree and the temple. And the lesson is this, that the way we worship God is not a small thing. If our worship of God is polluted, it will ultimately destroy us. But the good news is that if you're trusting in Jesus, the Lord of the temple has come to erect a better temple, the temple which is himself. And if you trust in Jesus, Jesus is the temple of God, and you are part of the temple. You see, people look at this passage and they preach about how we should be doing keeping our building nice and everything else. And the passage does speak to that. But we are the temple. It's not the building. This passage is not about how we keep places of worship. It is about how we keep the church free from polluted worship. Because the church now is the temple of God. And if you are in Jesus, God now lives in you and you live in him forever. So now you have all the resources in life to resist any temptation to make the worship of God to be about you or to exploit God in any way. You can resist that. You know, maybe you are a follower of Jesus this morning and your heart has become cold to things of God. You have taken your eye off the ball, as it were. What should excite you no longer excites you. The cross of Jesus is no longer central to the way you live. You come to church not for him, but you have started coming for your own selfish ends. You lack any desire to love and serve him, to share the gospel with others. You are trampling on the courts of the Gentiles because you see them every day and you're not leading them to Jesus. You're just ignoring them. In fact, the way you live, you're making their life worse. It's not pointing them to him. That's the whole sermon there. Well, if that's you, then examine your heart. Come before God now. Jesus has died on the cross for you. His veins flow with never-ending grace. So go to him now and repent of your sin. Turn to him in true repentance. And he will forgive you because the Lord of the temple, he has come to lay down his life for you. Accept the forgiveness of sin which is already yours in Christ by truly coming to him. Ask Jesus now to help you to live for him. As a child of God, you are the temple of the living God, Paul tells us in Ephesians. So do not violate that temple by holding on to sin, by living for yourself. Surrender completely to Jesus and live for him alone. Now some of you I know, you have not yet truly surrendered to Jesus. One more sermon you have heard today and still you go back the way you can. Some of you deluded you belong to Jesus, you go back deluded. Some of you know you have not truly surrendered to Jesus. You have not really accepted that you are a sinner headed for hell and need to be born again. 
Jesus is warning you here, isn't it? If you have no desire to surrender and live for him, if your heart does not beat for the things his heart beats for, if you have no deep longing to love what he longs for, if in every day it's just all about you, 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 if you have no, your heart has not bowed the knee to Christ, then simply put, you are no different from these many changes. You want to know what Jesus thinks about you right now? Look at what he's doing to the many changes. Look at the traitors. Because if you have not turned to Jesus, sin, the world, Satan, death, are your friends now. You are under the authority and power of Satan, and your end is destruction. You have willingly chosen to suffer destruction at the hands of God. Right? Now, God does not desire your everlasting destruction. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. No, God longs to hold you in his hands. He longs for you to come to him. He longs you to spend eternity with him. He wants to set you free from your everlasting chains. He wants to bring you, gather you in as a mother gathers in her chicks, as it were. He wants you to have a relationship with him. And the good news of this passage, beloved, is that Jesus is not here as a victim. What the chief priests are doing is not, Jesus is not being victimized. Jesus has come to die at the hands of the chief priests. He's come to be exploited by them. So that through exploiting Jesus, we may have God. Through Jesus' willing sacrifice for our sins, we would love life with God. And if you turn to God today, you can become a true child of God. Admit you're a sinner and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin based on his sacrifice on the cross. And if you already know Christ, surrender. Either the Bible for you is true or it's not. Let us leave the childish ways behind and face God as God commands. Do we believe Jesus? Well, if we do, repent of corrupt worship. If you don't, then of course, AD 70 stands at the monument for what lies ahead of you. The choice is yours.